0: This is Trey. Thank you for joining us for the Tuesday edition of our podcast. And this is a, a real treat for me. If you listen to this podcast, if you watch the television show, if you have read uh, really any of the three books I've written, then I have cited, quoted, paraphrased, stolen from today's guest. I try not to steal. I try to give him credit. I quoted a story that he included in one of his books in my last book because that story had a profound impact on me. There are two books sitting on my bedside table right now as we speak, and that's been true for over a decade. Uh, There's the Bible, which makes my mom and my wife very happy. And then there's a book called Gates of Fire, which is my favorite book of all time, written by an author who is currently living. I I love Dostoevsky, and I love Tolstoy, But Gates of Fire struck me in a way that no other book has. He's written scores of other books, historical fiction, fiction, nonfiction. His name is Stephen Pressfield, and we are delighted to have you with us today. Welcome to you. Hey,
1: thanks, Trey. It's a pleasure to be here. We've been trying to do this for a while, and I'm, I'm glad we finally got it together.
0: Well, I am a semi-retired, maybe on the way to being fully retired. Uh, depends on You know, I guess the ratings for my TV show, but you're a busy guy. So thank you for doing this. All right. My pleasure. I want to talk to you about your craft, your artistry, um, but also how people listening can, can maybe practice their own artistry. Is it true? Is it true that for nearly two decades, you worked your artistry, your craft without getting a single penny in return? That's true. I think it was a little more than that, in fact. Yeah. Was it a love of what you were doing? Was it a self-belief that, that eventually this is going to catch? What what caused you to keep going? Um, I, it
1: was one of those things... In, you know, I think when you ask a question, uh, ask an artist or somebody, why do you do what you do? I mean, the real the real answer is because you can't do anything else. And I don't I don't mean that that you can't get hired to do anything else, but just your heart can't stand it to do that. You know, i um, so in many ways for me, um, the lack of success over such a long time was a good thing because it forced me to ask the question and answer it. Why am I doing this? You know, because my whole family, my family would ask that question. You know, what's wrong with this guy? You know, why does he keep doing this? And uh, it certainly wasn't for money. It certainly wasn't for recognition because I wasn't getting any of that. And so it just kind of came down to me for the love of the game. You know, if you're a musician, you just love to play music. You know, if you're an artist, you feel like you have to do something visually. And for me as a writer, I felt like, uh, you know, I just had to keep going until something
0: broke through. I like to kind of tell people what what you're good at may be different from what you love. And you got to find a way to marry up what you're good at with what you love. That's the advice I give, free advice I give teenagers. (laughs) You clearly loved it. But were there moments when you, like, doubted, well, am I good enough to be published? Because I think it was decades before your first novel was published, wasn't it? Yeah, I was 52 years old. And, yeah, I mean, I I totally
1: self-doubt was like I woke up with it every morning and lived with it every day. I just thought to myself, you know, just what you say, Trey, are you good enough for this? Are you ever going to be good enough for this? And for all that length of time, I really wasn't. You know, I look back at the stuff that I wrote then, and it just wasn't good enough. But the great thing about writing, as opposed to, say, playing in the NBA, is you can get better at it, you know. If just through hard work and trying, you can get better over time. You can learn.
0: I guess the legend of Bagger Vance is is when you, if the right phrase, and if you take offense at this phrase, then stop me. It, you burst onto the scene. Is that fair to say with That's the legend of Bagger Vance? A little, a little
1: bigger than what actually happened, but it certainly was. The first actual validation, you know, a published novel, that kind of thing. So, yeah, that was a big moment for me.
0: And that definitely was the moment when I felt I turned a corner. All right. So I am a, a rabid golfer. My wife would tell you that is what I do for a living. is play golf. <laughs> I thought so you, you were a golfer. Trey. I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> so you have written. And I want people to to think about this for a second. You have written about golf, which is a pretty complex topic, uh, skill-wise and psychologically. The book I made reference to is The Battle at Thermopylae. You've written about Alexander the Great. You've written about the Amazons. You've written about World War II. Those are all individually things that people might specialize in. How do you research something and are comfortable enough to write about it? There are people who specialize in each one of those individually. So how do you do that? Sometimes people will mistake me
1: for a classical scholar because I've written, you know, a bunch of stuff said in the ancient world. But the truth is, I really only sort of drill down in a very narrow silo, you know, Of what what exactly I'm working on, like Gates of Fire is about the ancient Spartans and the Battle of Thermopylae. So, I just kind of read everything I could on that subject, um, which is not that much. Um, And if you were to ask me a question that was adjacent to that, you know, about Thebes or something like that, I would be totally clueless. So. I just sort of bore down in that one little silo where, where uh, you know, like I was talking to somebody the other day. I used to do my research at the UCLA Library before digital stuff became a thing. And they have a shelf there of Alexander the Great books that's maybe maybe three feet long, you know, just books about him. And so I just read all of them. But that's not that hard to do, you know. It, uh, it'd be like a college thing or something like that.
0: Yeah. I I mean, I'm going to let people judge it for themselves. I mean, they go read Gates of Fire. And and because when I read that, I then did what you just said. You did. I, I said, okay, this is one of the most fascinating cultures with all of its flaws and, and positive attributes. It's a fascinating culture. So I said, what all is out there that I can go read? I found maybe three books, maybe two professors. Yeah, yeah. But your book is every bit as detailed as what they wrote. Think about the the, the way Spartans waged battle and the detail that you put in there. You tell a story about dropping your sword versus dropping your shield, which I have stolen and used before. Did that come out of a research? Did, did, did you just yeah, from
1: that? That's from Plutarch, that thing about, uh, for our listeners, I'll give you the little, the little slightly longer version of that. It's like uh, the question that was asked by Plutarch, I think, was, um, why do the Spartans punish with a fine a warrior who loses his helmet um, or his breastplate, but punish with the loss of all citizen rights the warrior who loses his shield? And the answer was that helmet and breastplate are worn for the protection of the individual warrior, but the shield is for the protection of the whole line because the shield sort of overlapped and covered, partly covered the man next to you. So I just thought, yeah, I've just found that in in the research, reading Plutarch, and I just thought it was absolutely great, you know, really, just really expressed their ethic, you know, to the infinite degree.
0: I actually used that in a nominating speech for two guys that wound up later becoming the speaker of the house. So uh-huh. for better or worse, that may not have been what uh-huh. you intended when you wrote it. Uh-oh. You, you may say, I oh, wish you'd never read that, but it, it was, um, I don't know. I, I look, there's a reason that book's on my bedside table. I think it is an amazing book, but so too, I mean, the book on the Amazon. So how do you go from how do you go from Spartan culture and understanding really the role of women in Spartan culture was a big part of that? Alexander the Great to the Amazons. How does the mind go from one to the other? Well, you know, we're all interested in different things, right, Trey? I mean, you can go from golf to politics to
1: You know, any number of other things, but I'm always looking for something that grabs me, you know, some sort of something that uh, I can really uh, because a novel is going to take two and a half, three years. You know, so you got to fall in love with something. And for me, for that story about the Amazons were this supposedly legendary uh, race of all female warriors. And um, I always thought, oh, that's could that possibly be true? You know, I mean, it's such a great legend that you think, no, it can't be true. But there's another passage in Plutarch where uh, which I quote at the start of the book where he talks about Plutarch lived in Athens in the first century A.D. And the Amazon supposedly an army of women supposedly invaded Athens around twelve hundred A.D. So twelve hundred years earlier B.C., I'm sorry. So he, Plutarch, writing about this, he talks about that there are still, at that time, graves of the Amazons. There are names of places that were there that could only have come from that. There was a whole part of the city called the So when I kind of read that, I thought, wow, this could actually be true. And that sort of got me going. I just thought, okay, I got to explore this and see what this is all about. It's just too, too great a subject, you know, because I'm kind of a believer that, Women, as we know them today in the Western patriarchal or Eastern patriarchal culture, seem to me to be not who they fully are, not fully realized, you know? And I thought that was what what appealed to me about the Amazons. I mean... The concept of the Amazons was that they were a horse culture, like the American, you know, like the Sioux, the Dakota Sioux or the Cheyenne or Comanche or something. And that the horse was sort of made them the equal of, of any kind of warrior on horseback. They were also supposedly the first to use iron weapons as opposed to bronze weapons. And the first to actually fight as organized cavalry rather than just crazy people on horseback. So I thought that makes them physically the equal of men in combat. Right. And so then I just, it was just fascinating to me of what would a society like that be like? What would women be like in, in a culture like that, where they don't have to marry and depend upon a man or whatever, you know? So anyway, that's kind of.
0: You know, I just got fascinated by that subject and then plunged into it for a few years. This is going to sound like a business question, but it's not a business question. It is a practicality question that I, I, I bet our listeners are sitting there thinking, OK, you read something by Plutar that just totally captured your imagination. How do you go from that to convincing your publisher, your agent, whoever needs to be convinced that, hey, This idea is worth me investing the next 18 to 36 months on. Ah, That's a great question, Trey. It's like, I
1: think, again, because I've failed for so long and I would write, you know, for two two years or two and a half years and nothing would come of it, I sort of had the mindset that, I'm willing to do this totally on the come, totally on spec, any project that I would pick up. I wouldn't need a contract. And even for for fiction, as you know, you, don't, you can't get a contract, right? Uh, a publisher obviously wants to see the whole book because they want to know if it works, right? Not for nonfiction, but for fiction. So I just sort of figure I have to ask myself, if I put in two or two and a half years on this and nothing comes of it, is that okay with me? And in this case, I said to myself, yeah, it is okay with me it's you know it just sort of i just sort of came up you know believing in betting on yourself
0: i'm only smiling because of how accurate what you just said was i am moving from what they think i guess they call self help it's it's really I, i'm moving from how to teach people to ask questions or make decisions to my first foray into fiction which is a crime novel and you are very right uh there, there there's a big appetite for losing weight there is less of an appetite for, for a book about about uh, some imaginary crime drama. But you raise a fascinating. Let me
1: interrupt you just for a second, say, yes. to say, let me congratulate you for that. You know, let me give you props. I salute you. God bless you. It takes balls to do that, you know. And it's great that you're doing that. You're pushing yourself into an area that uh, might be out of your
0: comfort zone. I I wish you the best of luck. It is sheer love. And what you said resonates with me. I, I will do it if no one else has any interest in reading it, because I've always wanted. I was a prosecutor for almost two decades, and I'm fascinated by crime and what it does to people and why they commit it. So, all right. I was on your website. And it seems like like Gates of Fire and other books are listed under fiction. I consider them historical fiction. That's how I describe them when I'm telling people. I do, too. To me, that seems the hardest of all, because some professor at Oxford or Cambridge is going to say, well, he got this wrong. That's not the way their military moved. So you're going to get fact checked on half of it. And then the other half will be critiqued from a. You know, creativities, it it just, that seems to me to be the hardest genre. But you've spent a lot of time in that genre. So what do you think? I mean, I, I, again, it's just what you love. You know, it's like what you were just talking
1: about, about prosecution and the crime and something like that. I just I just uh, am fascinated by other eras, particularly the ancient world. You know, maybe previous lives. Maybe I was alive at that time in some way. I don't know. But on the other hand, it is kind of easier in a way, Trey, because at least you, you're starting with something that actually happened. That's- like if I'm writing I, like I wrote two books about Alexander the Great. And at least, you know, you can read up and see this happened, that happened, he said this, that. And then you just sort of insert your own imagination, imagine yourself back into that that space and then
0: sort of ask yourself, well, what would really happen if we were really there? We'll be right back with more of the Trey Gowdy podcast fox news radio on demand on the fox news app download the app and just click listen when you swipe left you can listen to your favorite fox news talk shows live swipe right for the latest fox news radio newscasts on demand fox news radio on the fox news app download it today when you wrote your book on afghanistan i mean did you have any idea that it would still play such a prominent role on the world stage i mean you've got Russia and, I mean, Alexander the Great and and the United States and, I guess, other countries that have gotten involved in Afghanistan? Well,
1: the book is that you're talking about is, is the Afghan campaign, and it's about Alexander the Great's campaign in Afghanistan right. in 333 to 330 B.C. And when I started to write that, we were already over there fighting, you know. Okay. So when I was studying Alexander and I came to that part of his life, I thought, this is exactly like what's going on there now. You know, it's another Western army. You know, what, what for the time was highly technically advanced, unbeaten. And they were getting their butt kicked by these primitive tribesmen. And so I just thought I got a this is a book all by itself. It was a, a chapter in a previous book. But then I thought, let me write an entire book on this because it's so interesting.
0: I when I'm trying to encourage people to go read that book I tell them it, Alexander the Great basically changed who he was and became the enemy he was fighting long enough to fight to a draw and then he got out that's how I summarize the book but it seemed to me like he became maybe what he really was but it but it changed him fighting and losing in that way changed him but you wrote the book what was your no, take I- on? I would agree with that completely. And it's sort of happening to
1: every other army that goes in there, too, with maybe the exception of the British, who just refused to change and just got, you know, got massacred over and over again. But, you know, he was a a Western, you know, uh, general, commander, conqueror that in, in his previous wars had fought kings, you know, Darius of Persia and so on and so forth, that if you beat them on the field, they would surrender. You could then march into you know, Babylon and the city would turn out and throw rose petals in front of you. But in Afghanistan, no matter how many times you won, the enemy was never going to give you an inch, you know. So Alexander had to sort of sink to their level, you know, in it. You know, I don't want to put it that way because it really wasn't their level, you know. And he, you know, began massacres and, you know, transshipments of entire population, and so I would, I I go along with what you say, Trey. That's my way I look at it too. And then he just sort of declared victory, married a princess, and got the hell out of there. Out of
0: there. I, uh, I think it's either that book or the bigger book you wrote on on Alexander the Great that I want to come back and ask you about something you included that I. Borrowed, gave you credit for, and put in my last book. But you, at some point, it looks like your interest went from historical fiction to nonfiction. To I'm not going to call it self help. I mean that as a compliment, but other people may not uh-huh. take it that way. But but you pivoted. It, it was it, it was a different genre of book. Is that a different phase of life? Did you say, look, I've done everything I want to do on the other side? What caused that? Well, are you talking about the War of Art, Trey? The War of Art would be the first one. Yes, sir. That was really
1: just sort of a one off for me. You know, I I, I was writing the historical fiction and I wrote the War of Art. Then I went right back to historical fiction for a few more books. And then I kind of went back and kind of followed up on the war of art after that. So I'm still sort of bouncing back and forth. The one I'm working on a book right now that's also set in the ancient world. So, but as far as the war of art went, it's really about the creative process, as you know, and the sort of the devils that live in our head, you know, that war that we have to fight against our own self sabotage and tendency to procrastinate and all that kind of stuff. And I just had had talked to various friends, friends would come to me and say, I got a book in me, you know, will you help me? You know, and I would sit up with them at night, you know, till two in the morning and try to warn them about the devil in their own head that they were gonna have to fight against. And of course nobody paid any attention to me. Nobody ever wrote the books that they won. But I thought, let me just put this down on paper. And then if anybody asks me about it again, I'll just say, here, read this. So um, so that was how the War of Art I wrote in like two months. But I mean, as you know, it's a short book with really short chapters.
0: Yes. Yeah, I, well, I guess you lived it. I mean, you lived through it. That helped you write it so quickly. It wasn't like yeah. you had to go research it. No, it was totally you know burned into my brain for 30 years. So
1: I just had to just find a way to find the idiom and then put it on paper.
0: Oh, and I want to pick up on a couple of things that you reference in that, or at least what I took from it. And you tell me I misread it, or maybe it's close and this is how it can help people. The enemy within, that that I have seen the enemy, and it is I, that that we defeat ourselves far more often than outside forces defeat us. That's exactly that's that's it. You got that's the whole
1: uh premise, the thesis of of the book. And it's absolutely true. And I've heard it from so many people who've written me letters and emails and stuff like this. It's like when you sit down at a typewriter or a blank page or a piano or anything like that, I think we all can agree that there's a negative force that sort of radiates off of that thing. Like when you're writing, I'm sure you, I want to ask you when you sit down and are working on your your crime story, And that force kind of tries to distract you, tries to get you to put it off till tomorrow, tries to tell you you're not good enough. Who do you think you are trying this stuff, right? You're too old, you're too young, you're too fat, you're too thin, blah, blah, blah. And that force, that voice in our head is universal. And you're right. It's what defeats people. I would say anybody that wants to have any kind of creative career, even if it's only just one thing, one book, one movie, one record album or whatever, the first thing you have to do before you even start to think about craft is master that demon in your mind, that dragon that has to be slain anew every morning. And I can tell you from doing this for 50 years, it never goes away
0: and it never gets any easier. The dragon that I see most often is this belief that there is nothing new under the sun, that it all goes back. It's all either a footnote to Plato or Jesus. I mean, nothing Uh is new. So who am I to think that I'm going to come up with something that that is novel? That is the dragon that I hear. I wonder, are there dragons you still hear? You said maybe there were and what those dragons are. That is one dragon trade that I would say
1: if we had a bouquet of dragons in front of us and we had a hundred people who tried to write or paint or whatever, some would pick that little rose and others would pick, pick others. The force of that. I call resistance with a capital R is trying to stop us. So it's a voice in our head. That's trying to stop us from doing our work. So it will pick because it is intelligent and, ever-changing ever-shifting diabolically clever it will pick the one thought that hits us closest to home that's it for you you know the idea that it's been done before but the one for me is is about the subject matter itself i'll have a voice in my head that'll say who's going to care about this subject that you think is so great you know uh You know, the Battle of Thermopylae, nobody can spell it, nobody can pronounce it, nobody knows where it is, why is anybody, and and the bottom line is all of these voices are all full of if you'll forgive me on your show here, they're all bogus, you
0: know, and we all have to look past them and just sit down and do the work. Yeah, it's fascinating you say that. I mean, I guess I'm maybe I'm the only one who've never heard of the Battle of Thermopylae or Hot Gates until <laughs> until I read your book. And then there was a pretty I guess there was a movie that came out either right before or right after called 300. Yeah. And some people um, confuse the two and I would always say no, you got to go read the book. <laughs>
1: Yeah, here's a little quick backstory on that. If you don't know that, Trey, you know in Hollywood they have this term called development. Do you know what? Does that ring a bell at all? You know, yeah, what a little is? bit, yes, yeah, sir. It's like a script or a movie idea is quote unquote in development when it's moving from a raw idea or a rough script until until it's ready for production. Until they, it's a finished script, it's been cast, it has a budget, that sort of thing, and at this one particular time, Gates of Fire was in development in Hollywood. And at the same time, there was this graphic novel by Frank Miller called 300. And they were going like two trains going down parallel tracks. And 300 won. And as soon as it won, it got put together as a movie that was that killed Gates of Fire. So 300 has nothing to do with Gates of Fire.
0: Yeah. I, I Now that I think about it, that makes perfect sense because i'm sitting there wondering why that book was i mean nothing against legend of bagger vans i love golf matt matt damon i'm sure it's a great guy but i'm sitting there thinking why was the gate well why was gates of fire not made into a movie and it's because frank miller's thing was sitting over there i guess in development maybe at the same time but yeah that was it uh, no offense. I mean, I saw the movie too. I just, I don't know the stories that you told in Gates of Fire. I just, I don't know. It, it'd be more than a movie. It'd be a mini-series. So, um. all right. Self-doubt to me is a little bit different from self-sabotage. When you talk about the resistance within, are you including all of that? Or do you have like a oh, separate man. way of battling self-sabotage as opposed to self-doubt?
1: I would say self-sabotage is sort of the overwhelming, the the big category, the overarching category. And under it, one of the ways that we sabotage ourselves is with self-doubt. And other ways are distraction or the kind of the rationale that you had. Oh, it's all been done before. Why should I waste my time doing it? That kind kind of thing. Um, But self-sabotage is the overall arching thing because there also is such a thing if you're a writer or an artist of any kind as sabotaged by other people, you know, people close to you who will, you know, kind of condescend to you. Oh, Trey, you're writing a crime novel. Hey, good for you. Uh, Good luck. I'm sure it's going to be great. We're we're all waiting for it. That kind of thing, you know,
0: but then self-sabotage doesn't need other people. We just do it to ourselves. Well, You've had about every job you can possibly have, including, I believe, if I read this correctly, you worked in a psychiatric wing of a hospital or something close there, too. Yeah. So I'm wondering why we biologically, evolutionarily, why we have that in us that wants to defeat us
1: um i I mean i can give you i have a a, my explanation but it's
0: kind of getting into the weeds a little bit that's okay Uh, i mean i think everybody listening deals with self-doubt and self-sabotage and you know a lot of people that listen to this have have kind of a spiritual religious underpinning and so you know i don't think blame god's not the right way of putting it but they're going to I, I just wonder. I mean, we're, we're biologically wired to to run in the face of danger, to defend ourselves. The adrenaline kicks in, but yet we're biologically wired to doubt ourselves.
1: Okay, I'll give you. I'll give you my my theory here, Trey. For whatever
0: yeah. it's worth, if you
1: think of the the structure of the human psyche, I would say there's at least two big parts to it. One is the ego. Which we would define as how we, when we refer to ourselves as I, it's rational, it's it's reality based, it's materialistic. Um, the ego uh, is acquisitive. The ego is aggressive. The ego is competitive. The ego is fearful. The ego is kind of a small, the small part of our mind. And then there's a bigger part that I would call the self, with a capital S. Stealing from Jung and from you know the world of psychology and to me how i would define the self it's a much bigger thing than the ego the ego is contained within it the self would contain the collective unconscious intuition dreams come from the self all of those things that you can't kind of explain come from the self and in fact in the model that i see the self uh abuts against what they call the divine ground In other words, God, right? Something that we can't explain. So when we as artists or any kind of creative people are trying to tap into that field of possibility that will produce a symphony or a novel or whatever it is, we're trying to get to the self, the capital S self. And if we can make a shift to that place, Then we can tap into intuition. We can tap into a flow state. It's a little bit like golf. It's a lot like golf, right? And so I think that what happens when we start to make the first tentative moves into the self, like a musician that sits down at the piano and just kind of starts to trust themselves and do kind of crazy stuff that comes out good. When that starts to happen, the ego revolts against it because the ego can feel it's about to be put out of a job. It's like if this guy or this gal can tap into that greater power, what do they need me for? And so I think it's the ego protecting itself that throws up this negative stuff and tries to stop you, tries to sabotage you, you know, and uh, puts that voice in your head that says you can't do this. And, of course, if we believe that
0: voice, the ego wins and we don't
1: shift to the
0: self. I don't know if it was Jung or, or Freud that came up with that first, but it has been around so long that it be- it's beginning to make me think it's real. What you just said is real. I've seen it so many times. I'm not talking about writing books. I'm not talking about writing. like I- I'm talking about just that self-doubt. Uh, Your explanation is as good as any other one I've heard. I mean, I don't know why we would be wired to like protect ourselves. These self, I used to see these self defense wounds. They're, there's, they're just, they're automatic Mm. that we defend ourselves. Mm. And yet what you and I are talking about is like automatic stabbing ourselves. If you're enjoying our conversation, you can find more just like this at foxnewspodcast.com. Right, well, I want to end on something happier. I need to have you on every week because you sent the nicest gift package of, of anyone out there. I mean, most of my friends I have on, they send me a bill. They don't send me like a gift package. Well, I'll send you a bill too, if you want. One. Send me a bill. I'm broke, but send it. I want to read something to you and you tell me if you recognize it. Okay. Okay. Keep watching movies and TV. Keep studying stuff that works. Study how Hemingway did it or Tolstoy or Toni Morrison. That counts as work. You go on. This is day 350 and what is called the daily press field, which is, I don't want to say it's a devotional, but it's a daily list of things that are worth thinking about. How did you, how did that idea pop into your head? Um, Do you know who Ryan Holiday is? How do I know one of the books
1: he's he's written is called The Daily Stoic. He's a big kind of champion oh, sure. of stoicism, a
0: uh, Marcus and, Aurelius uh, kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yes. Okay, yeah, okay. And, and so he has a book called The Daily Stoic, and we're friends. And he said to me, he said, "You should write something like this, a daily type of book, because you've got so much content. And you've got so much stuff from all your years of you know struggle. You should put it together because it could really help people, you know, so that they could." starting day one of a year if they are working on some kind of long-term project like you working on your crime book and that this book could sort of help them as they go through uh, you know defeat their own self-sabotage encourage them inspire them motivate them that kind of thing and uh it would be where i could i could draw from all of my stuff not just the self-helpy books but historical fiction and nonfiction and so on and so forth. So uh, I just thought this would be something that could really help people. So I gave it a shot. It's
0: uh, it does. And I, it's I, out and right I, now.
1: If I may give it a plug, it's coming out right now. For oh, Christmas. no, I'm,
0: I'm sitting here looking at it. And 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 look, I want people to go read everything you have ever written. But if they say, look, Gates of Fire seems a little long for me to start with and start with the daily press field, I do want to ask you about a small little section that you put in I don't think it was the Afghan campaign. I think it was the bigger book about Alexander the Great, but I want to ask you about it because that's actually part of the reason I left politics was, really? was reading that section of it, which wow, a, lot of be, a lot of people will be sorry. A lot of people would be very, very happy with you because that led me to get out of <laughs> politics. You'll be very popular. Well, that was my intention at all along. Well, it worked. It worked. <laughs> But before I ask you that, I do want to ask you. They they tell me that that, you know, mediocre writers can write about what they know. The really, really great writers like you can write about stuff that they haven't experienced. That that, you know, those of us that are not all that good at it, we write about what we know. Having said that, is there a character that you especially Fell in love with, respected, wished that you had known more about, wished had been real in any of the books that you've written. Is there one character that stands out in your mind the most? Is that is somebody I really wish I'd gotten to know? Well, there's,
1: that's a great question. There's a there's a bunch of them, of course, like your characters are like your children. Right. You, you know, you always want. But there's a true historical character in. Uh, my third book called tides of war and the character is Alcibiades i'm sure uh-huh. that from athens who was this guy who as a general was never defeated but who was sentenced to death by his own people defected to sparta was sentenced to death by them defected to persia then defected to the thracians and just led and just led a crazy life all the way through and um I would love to pick, if I could be beamed back, and just uh, to see, could this guy be real? He's like such a larger-than-life, amazing character. He's the guy I would love to to see who he who he really was and what it was really all about.
0: I may have him confused with someone else you wrote about. I, that book is phenomenal, by the way. Was he also not like generally considered to be the most handsome person on earth? Yeah, that's what they
1: said that like it was said of him that at every stage of life, as a boy, as a youth, as a young man, as a man of mature years, he was like the best looking person anybody had ever seen. And one other tiny tidbit of him about him, he entered in the Olympic games back in the day that he won first, second and third in the chariot race. As an individual, not as a country, he so this is the kind of a guy he was. But uh, tell me your story, Trey, about getting out of politics. I got to Well,
0: hear this. I want you to tell the story because you wrote it, but I will tell you what it is. Alexander the Great is about to cross a footbridge, either going into India or he's in India. And an Indian wise man is coming on the other side of the footbridge. Do you remember it now? Yeah, it's a little bit different than that, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah. All right. Well, then, like I said, I paraphrased and corrupted some of your great stories. Uh I kind of like uh, the footbridge. It's good. You use another word, not Indian wise man. Is S-A-H-U, or I'll misspell it. Sadhu, S-A-D-H-U, meaning, you know, kind of a yogi.
1: Uh, a holy man that that lives uh, without, you know, just with a, a
0: begging bowl and a diaper. Right. And what I remember is Alexander the Great's men said, make way. The greatest man on earth is coming. He's conquered the world. At least that's what I remember. So uh-huh. if I'm really, really wrong, don't tell me, because the story's meant a lot to me. Uh. And then this Indian wise man responds that I'm the most powerful man in the world because I have conquered the need to conquer the world. That's pretty much the story. And
1: it supposedly is a true anecdote. I didn't make it up like um, so. The, a young lieutenant, actually, Alexander was walking along a footpath, sort of. And there were a bunch of yogis sitting in the sun, you know, and their legs, you know, in the lotus position. And the uh, young officers cleared them all out because Alexander was coming, except for this one guy. So the young lieutenant uh, said to the, to the uh, yogi, pointing to Alexander, he said, this man has conquered the world. What have you done? And the yogi said, I have conquered the need to conquer the world. And Alexander the Great supposedly laughed, burst out laughing in a positive way. He thought that was a great thing that the guy said. And he said to his retinue, he said, if I could be anyone in the world other than myself, I would be this man here which I thought was great. So tell me your story about politics. You know, oh, that's that
0: uh, well, I mean, you, you will not remember this, but someone on my staff knew that I, I love Gates of fire. One, one of the folks that worked for me when I was in Congress and he somehow, I don't know how he found you, but he got me a signed copy of Gates of fire. That's the one that sits on my bedside table, uh. you signed it. And so I'm reading, I've read, you know, I love to read. I rarely reread books but I have reread gates of fire more than I have reread all other books put together. Cause you, you miss stuff. I mean, or you don't remember stuff. I just remember reading that and thinking, okay, he really is the most powerful man on earth because he defines what success is for him. It's not the accolades of taking over, conquering the world of weeping for there were no more nations to conquer. He's sitting there with nothing, and yet he feels like he has conquered the world because he's conquered his own ambition and what other people thought about him. So once you understand that you get to define significance, other people don't do it for you. You define what a significant life is. Then it liberates you to go do what you want to do. Mm. You don't like care about what the, in Ridley Scott's you know, gladiator, he, he screams at the crowd. Are you not entertained? You don't have to worry about entertaining anyone else because you're at peace. Ah. When I looked at that and I thought, okay, I don't want to be here. So why am I here? I don't, I don't enjoy this. I don't want to be here. It's hard to leave what people Uh perceive as a good job. It's hard to leave what people perceive as, you know, fame's not the right word. Members of Congress aren't famous, but you're notorious. But if that's not what, if that's not how you define success, then you ought to leave. So that's, that's, ah, that's what led that's me to do it. Well, I I take my hat off to you, Trey, because it seems like
1: there's 488, however many people there are in Congress that can't push themselves to make that. I'm sure there are many, many people who think, what am I doing here? I'm not getting anything done. I'm, this is not what I really love to do, but somehow I guess it's so addictive, whatever, you know, the power or whatever it is that you have, you know, the feeling of significance or relevance that it's really hard to let it go. So God bless you for,
0: you know, being able to walk away. i play this game in my head that, 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 that when I'm gone, what do I want people to say to my wife? I want them to say he was a good prosecutor, mm. that he was funny and fair and a good prosecutor. I don't care about the rest of it. Huh. So if that's what I want to be said, then why don't I spend more time like working on that? I don't care if they say it was in Congress. She may not remember. She doesn't follow politics. She may have forgotten. <laughs> so if that's what you want to be known for, then, you know, I mean, I guess you and I are close to the same age. But but we're to the point where it's it's OK to be thinking about what people will remember.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, flashing back to what I said a few minutes ago about the ego and the self. Yes, sir. I would say that when you made that decision, Trey, you moved from the ego to the self. And you said, you know, this is I mean, you know, the ego is about uh, being known and, you know, being getting accolades and that all that sort of stuff. But the self is really about why am I here? what what really matters to me? Uh, You know, on my deathbed, what am I going
0: to regret? And uh, that's a great thing. That's a real evolution, you know. And for those who are interested in like living beyond their time, writing books is a way to live beyond your time. I mean, it is something, I mean, I don't want to use the word legacy, but that is a legacy of sorts that, that outlives each of us. Yeah, that's true. Sort of,
1: except these days, you know, with attention spans being about 3.2 seconds and, uh, AI coming in. I don't know how much. How much? I don't want to
0: discourage you on your crime novel, but uh, I cannot be discouraged. Enjoy the process because I am going to enjoy the process. I'm going to test the limits of my creativity. Um, I have been told by my agent that you may have to pay them to publish a fiction book. I mean, nobody's paid. I mean, if you want to write a book about how to stop smoking, they'll pay you a lot of money. But if you want, <laughs> if you want to write a book about Crime fiction probably not but I've always wanted to do it so why not do it? Yeah God bless you how, how far along are you? I have it in my head and I'm oh, begin and I probably have six chapters uh-huh what I find is because I don't have to fact check myself although I did live some of these crimes uh as a prosecutor. You can like go down this rabbit hole where you're introducing a character, but you can kind of make up, give that whole character depth and breadth that, that doesn't have to be researched. Yeah, kind of yeah. make it up. Yeah, isn't that fun? <laughs> it is fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it also, I don't. Do you ever watch miniseries? Do you get? Do you have a chance to watch? Stuff? I do. Yeah. Yeah. True Detective was a crime miniseries. Yeah, with Matthew McConaughey and um, Woody Woody Harrelson. Yeah, that character that McConaughey played, Russ Cole, the cynicism. I mean, I don't mind people calling me a stoic. I, I think I probably am. But he had a level of cynicism that I'm fascinated by people who were kind of like that i mean that that, that nothing matters that, that that everything is bad that human nature <sighs> is debased so we're going to see where it goes but um i've had a publisher well penguin random house has been great enough to publish my last two books but i, I mean look there's so many people writing crime <sighs> dramas they're not going to take a chance on a washed up congressman i wouldn't well, what's I next for you true.
1: i mean you're a you're a former prosecutor you have a certain yeah. level of fame you know I mean, and all you gotta do is write something good. Well, and, that, and, and what good. You said About that cynical attitude, I mean, that's right out of that genre, right? The Dashiell Hammett, you know, uh, you know, this private eye or the the detective that's burned out and only sees the dark side. So that's, you know, you can't get enough of that in in that kind of story. It's always
0: great. Well, the more you're around crime, I mean, you, you, when it's all you see, you think it's all there is, and yeah. And it gives you, you know, if I worked around first grade school teachers and puppies, I would have a much better view uh-huh. of mankind, of humankind. But you say you're working. I don't I don't I don't want to I'm not prying. You say you're working on a another piece from from the classics. You've written about a lot of Greek characters. Any Roman characters in your future? Yeah,
1: this is actually uh, uh, I wrote a book a couple of years ago called A Man at Arms. And it was about a a, uh, a guy who had lived a number of lives. He's actually in The Virtues of War, the Alexander the Great book. And uh, um, so he sort of spans the Greek and Roman era. And this book that I'm working on now is kind of the further adventures of this particular character.
0: And it takes you, you said, like two or three years? Yeah. Uh-huh. Wow are you capable of working on more than one project at a time or do you have Yeah, I am. Yeah, definitely. Well, like uh, right now I'm kind
1: of promoting the daily press field. Yes. And uh, so I'm sort of dividing my days between trying to get the word out on that and
0: working on this, this ancient world book. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I am looking at it. And like I said, you might not get the package that I got, but that's okay. As long as you just go get the book, You I don't want to say devotional, but people that listen to my podcast know what I'm talking about. It's not you're not reading crime and punishment every day. These are like a paragraph long and they're not like dated. So you don't have to like pick it up on New Year's Day. You can if you want to. But there's a number. It's day 44 and it's day one and day 67. You can start whenever you want to. What's going to happen? I'll tell you ladies and gentlemen, what's going to happen is you're going to read a little vignette or story from a book and you're going to say, I'd like to go read the whole book. The books of his that I have read, I light up when I read a clause from it or a thought from it. So it's the daily Pressfield. Do what I've done. Read. I haven't read everything he's written, but everything he's written that I've read, I loved. So go, go pull up Stephen Pressfield. My favorite living author and uh, can't wait for what's coming next. And I can't thank you enough for joining us. I know you're a busy man. So thank you.
1: Hey, thanks for having me, Trey. And then uh, thanks for the very kind words. If I can say one thing about the daily Pressfield, you can find it, go to my website, just my name, stephenpressfield.com. And it'll tell you how to get it and what the, what the various options are. And someday you and I got to play golf. I mean, I'll come back to Spartanburg,
0: you know, I mean, I need some shots. I need some shots. Uh, uh, I need some shots. (laughs) I would love to play golf with you. It's a fascinating sport. It is really more like a cult than it is a sport, but I'd love to do it. Uh, my guess is that I'm going to need two shots aside. I think just be, looking at you, just being fair <laughs> I mean, about it. to need two a hole from you. <laughs> All right, StephenPressfield.com. Are you on social media? Do, do, you know, do, I'm on Instagram primarily, but also on
1: uh, Facebook. And uh, I'm not a real Twitter person, or I guess Twitter isn't even Twitter anymore.
0: Yeah, I'm but not. I'm either. definitely on Instagram. So people want to get the Daily Pressfield. They they need to uh, – I mean, it – They need to go to your website. They don't need to go on Amazon. They need to go to your website.
1: Okay, thanks for asking that question, Trey. Uh, You can just get the book on Amazon, but we have on my website two special offers for, like, signed books. You know, that you can get an actual, just the book signed by me and the illustrator, Vic Juhas, great illustrator. And then we also have that special gift package that you have. Too bad we don't have video here so we could show it. If you wanted to buy this book and give it to somebody that was, you know, working on a novel or a symphony or an album or something like that, the, this gift package is, you know, as you know, it's got a lot of extras in there, a little journal and blah, blah, blah. Um, so that's all on on just on my website. It's not available on Amazon,
0: but the book itself is available there. Well, I'm going to give some unsolicited advice to, to, to my friends that listen. Go to his website and get that gift package and then do what I did and open it and divide it up, and then you have all your Christmas gifts that you want to give to people. You can just get them out of that box and write somebody's name on it. <laughs> I wrote my idea. wife's name on one of them. <laughs> you, all your Christmas shopping is in that box. It is um, like everything else you have done. Uh, I, I, How in the world you made it to 50 or 51 or 52 without being recognized I don't know. I'm glad you stuck with it. I'm glad (laughs) that you fought the inner resistance and you stuck with it because you are, sure enough, my favorite living author. Well, thanks, Trey, And good luck with your crime novel. Thank you. Uh, I'm sure it's going to be great. Thank Uh, you. Let's stay in touch. We'll do this again. I would love that. And you you, you take care. All the best. And uh, it is the Daily Press Field. You can go to his website. If you want everything, that's what you all to do. And if you just want it quick, Amazon, wherever wherever books are sold. Thank you all. And thank you, Mr. Stephen Pressfield. I'm so grateful right. to you. Thank you, Trey. Yes, sir. You take care. See you next time. Listen ad-free with a Fox News podcast plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app.